welcome everyone to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center. This is our weekly seminar, the colloquium. And as a reminder, this is our last in-person uh, meeting of the semester. So we'll have two more uh, speakers, but they will be virtual. So I just wanted to remind you about that. Um, and I also wanted to let you know that next Friday, November 17th from 9.30 to 11.30, uh, we're going to be, we're going to have our professional development workshop on promoting your research. So that will be the who, what, where on all things grants, persuasive writing, and science communication or uh, engagement. And we will be meeting at the Plant Science Building Seminar Room next Friday, uh, next Friday from 9.30 to 11.30. So continuing on with the uh, cohort of the Global One Health Academy, as well as the Genetics and Genomics uh, scholars, so uh, invitation for FIFUs and anyone that's in this room. Um, and Modesta, can we have you come up here? I hope to introduce both Big Andrew and Little Andrew. <laughs> okay. Hi, everyone. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Andrew of Stanford. Oh, yeah, Pastor Hick. I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> He is currently a program coordinator at NC State. Um, previously, he was a postdoc at Cornell University, where he completed his PhD. Oh, I'm sorry. And he completed his PhD in anthropology in 2018 at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where he defended his dissertation title. When we came, there was nothing. Land, work, and value among trans transnational soybean farmers in Brazilian. Serrado. Wow. His research among transnational soybean farmers in Brazil incorporates training in agronomy and anthropology and asks how transnational farmers engage with soil and landscapes in Brazil, become members of workers and investors, and create and recreate agrarian communities out of place. He's now conducting new research on the biocultural life of soil consumption in the United States, planning new work on the social material life of soil, and continuing ethnographic research with transnational soy farmers in Brazil. So today his talk will focus on comparative ethnography of two groups of transnational soybean farmers in Brazilian Cerrado. Please join me. Actually, use the app. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. Um, and I'd like to introduce my son, Harlow Ostahag. He's available for questions. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe he has any business cards, but he's happy to help. So, thank you for coming. Uh, today, I'm going to give a really um, high level overview of, of 12 months of research. Um, the point being to start a conversation on uh, the role that social science and anthropology, you know, <laughs> Uh, can play in, in understanding genetic uh, engineering and uh, understanding other kind of agricultural topics. Um, so I'm going to try to go through this as quickly as possible so that we can have a lot of time for questions and clarifications and anything like that. Um, so this is one experience that I witnessed of, of transnational Soviet farming in Brazil. What you see here is a uh, Texan driving an Illinois-made John Deere on land owned by an Illinois farm family in the middle of Brazil. Uh, this is on a plane ride from the city where this farmer lives, uh, Luis Eduardo Magalhães, to his farm, which is about two hours by vehicle, uh, 30, 40, 45 minutes by plane. 
so this is really common in this place, in this part of Brazil, where there's really large-scale production uh, for people to live in Luis Eduardo Magalhães uh, and commute, basically, to work on their farms a few hours away, a couple days a week, um, while their farm workers are on the farm living there, doing the work. Um, so this is representative of one group of transnational farmers in Brazil that I worked with. These are American farmers from the 1980s, mostly from the early 2000s, actually, um, who were mostly coming from farm families. I'll talk more about kind of why they went there, but they're mostly uh, families who are struggling to farm in the U.S. or who left farming in the United States and were going to Brazil to find a place where they could continue farming traditions or begin a new farming traditions. Uh, they mostly migrated to Western Bahia, here right on the border with Tocantins, which is in the Sahara. This I'll talk about Sahara in a minute. So this is another experience of transnational flipping farming in Brazil. This is uh, a place you can see a pond that was built uh, 20 years ago. You can see livestock. You can see a place where the farmer washes his hands. This is representative of a group of Mennonites who migrated in the 1960s, late 60s. Again, I'll explain why they, they migrated in the first place. But while the other group has 30,000 30, hectare farms um, with soybean, corn, and, and uh, soy, these farms are more mixed. Uh, this isn't actually a soybean farm for Mennonites. It's just a pretty picture. Um, they have hay. They have soybeans. They have cattle. They have other livestock. They have all kinds of crops. Um, they settled in Hiuvegi in southwestern Goiás. So... The uh, family farmers with really large farms are here, and these Mennonites are here. I think something happened. Uh, so, just to frame this a little bit, uh, we can always come back to this. Uh, um, so, when I began this research, it was a question about what is the soy boom? The soy boom is this massive expansion of soybean production in Argentina, Brazil, Bolivia, uh, Uruguay, Paraguay. Um, and different authors talk about this as Soylandia, as the soyization of Latin America, as the soy boom. Um, and it often conjures ideas of homogenization, of this big, large-scale change happening across landscapes where it's becoming the same landscape everywhere, same markets everywhere, same farming practices everywhere. This homogenization of life um, according to soybean production. Uh, and for some, it's, it's cast in a negative way of imposition of land use, of deforestation, of degradation of land, of uh, removing communities from their land, from traditional land. For others, it's development. It's, it's creating markets, it's creating value, it's taking something that used to be uh, wasteland and making it into a bread basket. All these things are true. These things are all happening. Um, and so my work was to dig into this to see what is on the ground happening. Where is there space for difference? Where are the places where there is homogenization? Because that tells us a lot about commodity booms in agriculture as well. And then the other frame that I'd like to put this into is, is that of the Sehadu. The Sehadu is a savanna. Some places it's, it's uh, small trees. Some places just grassland, um, depending on how much precipitation that area has. And the Brazilian Sehadu is a place of, of storytelling. Uh, so some people talk about it. This agronomist from Iowa State um, talked about it as a wasteland with stunted trees. Uh, the Sejados are not rainforests. So this isn't a place like the Amazon to be preserved. It's a place that is open for development. It's a wasteland. 
there's nothing lost if this is uh, lost, basically. Um, a Japanese economist says, Brazil has achieved an epic-making breakthrough to become a net exporter of grain by converting barren land into one of the most productive agricultural areas in the world. Again, we can critique this, but it's true. It's taken, it's, I don't agree that it's barren land. It's taking something that wasn't involved in the global market and has become a breadbasket for Brazil in the world. Um, a Brazilian eco ecologist says, Cerrado is a rich and generally unappreciated biodiversity. The number of vascular species out of most floors in the world. So this is a place of a lot of endemic species. There's a lot of um, plants and animals that live there that live nowhere else. Um, so there's ecological value to this place. Uh, indigenous dwellers say that Cerrado is where we hunt. It's where we have our ceremonies. It's where we live, where we play, all this stuff. So it has this ecological value, but also to the people who live there, it has tremendous value for their livelihoods, for their society, for their religious life, their uh, spiritual life. Um, so all these things are true. Um, so this is a map of the Cejado. Here you can see uh, a map of soybean production in, in South America. And so you can see that pretty closely maps onto where the Cejado is. The Cejado is particularly an area of, of soybean expansion. So soybean production has been going on in Brazil for a really long time, but mostly in the South. Since the 1980s, 1970s, it's really expanded into the Brazilian Cejado. And here you can see my work sites of Hiveji, where the Mennonites live, Brasilia is the capital of Brazil, where I we do a lot of work as well, and Luis Eduardo Magalhães. So, coming into this as an anthropologist, uh, I wanted to approach these things in a different way. So, commodity booms, I want to understand, how do we understand this from an anthropological point perspective? Um, and by looking at these individual farmers as parts of a collective, we could see that farmers migrated to escape crises that they saw at home, whether for the Mennonites it was a social, cultural one, or for the family farmers an economic one. Um, and so in migrating, they fixed that crisis for themselves, while they didn't necessarily fix that crisis as a whole. They didn't really address the root causes of that crisis, but they fixed it for themselves, basically. So value and community. Uh, it's easy to see soybean production, especially in South America, as something that's really a financial economic activity. And so how do we understand other values that are at play at this, not only um, that are inciting this kind of action, but values that are created from being involved with soybean production in Latin America. Um, and so by doing this research, I found the two migrant groups created and recreated different kinds of values, different kinds of communities, uh, that sometimes are built around finance and econ economics, and sometimes are built around faith and other, other kinds of things, which we'll get into. And then finally, uh, it's easy to see this as an imposition of land use change, as farmers just going in and saying, we're gonna make this into soybean farms, but seeing this through an agroecology lens, not Agroecology in terms of kind of organic production, but agroecology in terms of we have this material life of agriculture here, and we have the social, the, the ecological conditions there. So how do farmers make this land productive? I've just got Arlo's attention, so I really, I'm proud of myself because I got your attention. <laughs> uh, and so how are they actually engaging with ecology in this place, not just imposing uh, production practices. So quickly, uh, my research is, is from an ethnographic point of view, so I do a lot of ethnographic, ethnographic interviews, which is like semi-structured. I go in the kind of a list of questions I want to talk about. Sometimes you talk about none of that, sometimes you talk about all of it, um, and a lot of participant observation. So I'd go along in tractors, uh, car rides, I'd kind of participate wherever I could in that life that was happening there. Um, this is also comparative ethnography. So a lot of my research was guided around 
convergence and divergence between these two different groups. So in what areas, in terms of production practices, in terms of uh, values, anything like that, are they coming together, converging around similarities? And in what ways are they diverging and becoming more different? And that says a lot about the space for difference and the space of, of kind of structure within the soy boom. And then finally, there's a transnational orthography. So I tried to do work in the United States and Brazil to follow the communities that they're coming from and to talk to them there. And then some of these farmers, especially with the, the farmers in Western Bahia, they were going back and forth. They might live in Illinois and go to Brazil three or four times a year to see what their farmers do. So it required me to be mobile, to use uh, Skype and that kind of thing to talk with, with farmers. Uh, so this is kind of how I did my research. It's okay. Um, so I'm going to break this down in each, each group. First, we're going to talk about the family farmers in Bahia. So the family farmers, uh, again, migrated in the 1980s and a lot of them in the early 2000s. Um, they were experiencing difficulty of farming in the United States. Uh, for beginning farmers who didn't have land, it's really expensive, it's really difficult to, to get that land in the United States. For families who had small farms, it was hard to, to continue farming. It was hard to be profitable. Um, so one farm in Idaho, he said he was going to go bankrupt farming 300 acres in, in, uh, outside of Boise. And so he said, I can either go bankrupt here, I can sell my land, buy land in Brazil, and maybe go bankrupt there. He thought he wasn't that optimistic, but he thought, well, I'm going to give it a shot. Another farm family had sold all their land in the 1980s, and they were commodity advisors. And they courted uh, investors who were other farmers in that area um, to invest in the land um, to buy it in Brazil and bought 10,000 hectares that year. Uh, one farm was, it was actually thriving in Illinois, and they wanted to buy land in Brazil to expand, basically, their farm to give more opportunities for the family to... Um, to, to inherit more land and have different kind of farms. So uh, for these guys, Brazil offered inexpensive land, um, cheap farmland, cheaply paid workers, an opportunity to, to really farm by another means. Um, so there's this common phrase of get bigger, get out, get out. They were getting out and then also getting big. And in general, I like to describe their farming practices as flexible farming. So this is a kind of farming that is amenable to market changes. It's amenable to getting out. It's amenable to kind of disconnection from land and workers and um, crops. So I'll go through each of these in turn. So flexible land. How do you farm a 30,000 hectare soybean farm? Uh, one thing that makes it possible is the physical characteristics of that land. So these, these plots, these pieces of land, one field might be 10,000 hectares. There's typically one kind of soil for that entire uh, plot. Um, it's also extremely flat. These kind of things allow the farmers to say, I'm going to plant soybeans on this entire 10,000 hectare field and not plant this crop on this hillside, this crop over here where this soil is like this. Um, and I need to plant you know, in uh, you know, two weeks earlier in this part of the field and three weeks later in this part of the field. It allows this kind of simplification of farming decisions that allows this kind of simplification of farming life. Uh, second, what makes it flexible is unlike a lot of American farmers in the United States, they didn't have a kind of social connection to that land. So they're, they're not buying this land to be in the family for generations. Um, they're buying it because it's a commodity, it's a means of production for that, that farm. Uh, and so this makes it more liquid than you maybe see on a typical North American farm or even in my research with 
quinoa farmers in Bolivia. They're connected to that piece of land. That's their piece of land, then their family. Um, so without that connection, it is more of a commodity. And then the third thing is uh, a lot of these farmers, especially those who had investors, went into it with the idea of, yeah, well, we're going to produce some soybeans on this piece of land and cotton and corn. Um, but really, it's a speculative asset. They're trying to buy the land when it's sehadu. They, they make it uh, fertile for industrial farming. They build all the infrastructure they need. They get land titles. They get this whole thing ready as a farm asset. And then at any moment, with, it, with a, the value that they can get is higher than what they sold and what they put into it, they can sell that at a, at a financial profit. Um, so the idea of, of this being liquid, it's always something that is on the table to be able to be sold. Um, and they will go into that with that idea. So these things make that land flexible. It's something that's only part of the farm so long as it's profitable to be part of the farm. So flexible crops. Um, you see a picture of cotton here. Uh, cotton is not a flexible crop. Cotton requires uh, post-harvest processing. There's only really one market for it. You can sell the seeds to chicken farmers, um, but for the most part, it's only really fiber, right? Um, it has really bad pest problems, especially in this part of the world, and the pest problems are really serious because it reduces the quality of cotton. So it takes a lot of attention. It takes a lot of care to grow cotton. Soy, on the other hand, is kind of the perfect flexible crop. It hardly takes any post-harvest uh, processing. Uh, the pest problems are less than cotton and some other crops. Um, it fixes its own nitrogen. So it takes, agronomically, it takes less care than a lot of different crops. And again, also socially, whereas, you know, if you go to Iowa, you might find a farmer who's really proud of being a good uh, a corn producer. In my work in Bolivia, you find farmers who only are proud of producing quinoa. Um, there's not that kind of social value to be a corn farmer, a soybean farmer, a cotton farmer here. So it's, it's again, there's no value attached to being a soy farmer. And then third, market-wise, there's always a market for, for soy. There's, you can sell it for oil, you can sell it for feed, you can sell it for numerous different things. So this makes it a nice thing that can be kind of switched in and out. It's an annual crop. Um, as markets change. Then flexible work. To, to manage these massive farms, you need a team of workers. So these farms have 100 to 150 farm workers, um, and the job of the farm owner becomes office work, right? It's, it's managing contracts, it's making sure that you're not running, uh, you're, you're not running afoul of, of regulations on labor, on environment, that kind of thing. Um, and so the farm owner's work could be anywhere. It could, be, it could be at a desk in Asuncion, um, Illinois. Uh, and those workers, in general, except for the tractor drivers, are often seen by American and Brazilian farmers as, as unskilled, right? So if one farmer leaves, you go to find a better job somewhere else, you can easily, as they, as they say, hire somebody else. So the labor isn't like, like a typical plantation where people are working there for, for decades or, or whatever. These workers are flexible. They move in and out of, of that farm. So all these things make that farm flexible. There's no kind of attachment to the workers, the people doing the work. There's little attachment to the crops. There's little attachment to the land. And this allows the farm owner to really change how the farm is oriented according to market changes, according to climate changes, that kind of thing. But there are certain things that limit that flexibility. So for one white fly, uh, is a serious problem for all these farmers um, because it can't really be managed well 
with existing insecticides. It can only really be managed well with integrated pest management, which takes a lot of care, takes a lot of attention, takes a lot of maintenance. Um, so it defies that kind of programmatization of, of farming. Um, and there's this, what they call the kind of battle of the Sehadu. And they said in the Illinois farms, you can maybe even skip a couple of years of, of fertilization and still get a pretty decent yield. Um, but with the Sahara soils, you're battling year to year to keep it uh, fertile, to keep it useful for industrial agriculture. Um, so there's this continued kind of care and maintenance of that soil that they don't experience in, in places like Illinois and Iowa. And then finally, uh, there's the kind of structural issues that, like, like the changes in foreign land law, which limit their ability to buy new land and sell land um, and do this kind of speculative land uh, farm, uh, farming model. And then also because they have investors, they can't just decide to do whatever they want. They have to do so with permission of their board of governors, with their board of directors of that farm. So it's not a husband and wife um, sitting around a farm table deciding what to do with the farm. It's a board of directors deciding together what's the most financially profitable thing to do. So the Mennonites, of course, offer a different perspective. Mennonites uh, migrated in the 1960s uh, in response to some Supreme Court decisions that they thought would make teaching um, sex education and evolution required in their classrooms. They were concerned about the Vietnam War draft uh, threatening their pacifism. They were concerned about um, the growing ubiquity of the television, which brought kind of worldly influences into their home. And so their main reason to go to Brazil was actually to find semi-autonomy from the worldly cultures, from the laws of the United States of America, from the draft, this kind of thing. And in Brazil, they got uh, exempted from the draft. They got a space for their own. They got permission to run their own schools. Um, but they had to find a way to, to live, and they found that through soybean production. And of course, uh, they have this kind of what I call fixed farming methodology, which I'll go through again through fixed land, fixed crust, and fixed work. I'll go through quickly as I can. So this is a sugarcane field. You will not find a single sugarcane field in the Mennonite colony. And this is because they see sugarcane as, as destructive of the soil, and they're because of the limited amount of land that they have on that community and the limited amount of money that they have to invest in more land, um, anything they can do to protect that soil, they're going to do. And so none of them produce sugarcane. It also requires a lot of workers, which they don't want to have to hire. Um, and so the land in that community is really strictly governed. Um, each, each farm has their own land. But um, let's say somebody accumulates 250 hectares, which would be a lot for that community. That farmer would be set aside by um, the elders of that community and said, you're putting your land, your farm in front of your family, in front of the community. You're not sharing that land with the rest of the community, and you're threatening our land base. And they, if that farmer persists with that, they could excommunicate that farmer. So this means of controlling how the land is distributed in that community um, and keep that land in the community. So liquidity, flexibility of that soil is their fear. They want it to stay in the community, stay bounded to that family, to that place. And they do whatever they can do to preserve the fertility of that land. Fixed crops. So a lot of these farmers also produce soy, but not exclusively. They make a lot of decisions on what crops they grow, what livestock they have, based on how it supports the family, how it supports the community. So if soybeans are the way to do that, they do that. A lot of them produce, um, have livestock, and this farmer in particular had livestock for his children. He said it helps them learn kind of responsibility, 
the economics of farming, it gives them something to do, something to be responsible for. Uh, so it's an economic asset, it's a part of the farm, but it, it's multifunctional. It's, it's doing multiple things for that farm. Um, one farmer said uh, they had uh, the opportunity to plant hay, but they stopped doing it after a couple of years because they were only selling to horse farmers, and they thought that was too leisurely, that was too kind of um, not productive kind of use of that thing, and so they stopped producing hay. Um, they don't produce sugarcane. Uh, they do kind of plant whatever crops are productive of that community, support that community. And so fixed work, uh, there's not many farm workers here. It's all family labor. So it is fixed within the community. Um, there's this idea of Galassenheit in the Mennonite community, which is that hard work on earth, on this earth, uh, kind of gets you favor in the, in the afterlife. And uh, so these, these farmers, they, they value themselves doing the work. They make fun of farmers like the family farms we are talking about before um, for not doing the work of being hooked to the satellite, they say and being dependent on technology, dependent on seeds, dependent on, on everything else, um, while these guys are actually doing the work, working in the fields, um, and that kind of thing. So all of these things, they bound together the land, and the workers, the work itself, and the crops into the community. So if it supports the community, if it supports the family, then they'll go ahead with that decision. But of course, there's certain things that limit that fixity. One thing is competition with Brazilian farmers. When these Mennonites came into Kiyoveji, there was very little soybean farming at that time. Um, but over the years, as farmers learned to uh, produce soybeans based on the Sahara using different soil management methods, uh, it became a valuable place to go. So more Brazilian farmers were coming from the south of Brazil, buying land there and producing soybeans and sugarcane. Um, so this uh, kind of forced those Mennonite farmers in order to keep farming, to keep their farms, to keep their land, to adopt different practices that they had avoided before. Um, so one of those is safrainha, which is like a second crop. So they plant soy, harvest that, plant a short season corn, harvest that. Uh, they avoided that before because they thought it seemed unfair. Like they thought it was not necessary, basically, and they didn't need to do it. And this kind of forced them to do that. This also forced them to move from seed saving from year to year to adopting hybrid seed in the early 2000s and then later on uh, Roundup Ready seed. Um, so I didn't talk much about seeds before, but the, the American farmers um, in Western Bahia primarily adopted Roundup Ready seed, BT, cotton, um, because it made it easier to farm. Like it, they, a lot of them said there was a yield drag for GMO seeds and, and that kind of thing, but they said this makes it easier to farm. If we can fire 20 workers who were previously cutting out weeds in the field, even if it costs more economically, but there's less regulation to run into. There's less farmer or workers we have to deal with, that kind of thing. So it makes it just easier to program and to model. Um, but whereas these farmers adopted these kind of things just to, to, to compete, to keep their land, basically. Um, and another thing they're dealing with is, despite the kind of community rules that they have to keep that land base intact, they are losing land. Uh, they can't really control a farmer from selling to a Brazilian farmer or just selling to somebody else outside the community. Um, so each time that happens, there's a little bit less land for the community, um, and that forces them to go into other work. So some of them owned restaurants, some of them did dirt work, which is using some kind of machines and that kind of thing, but they didn't have to own land. So building like earthen dams and um, foundations, that kind of thing. 
but it's also forcing them to expand. So some of them move to some of them move to Mato Grosso to form a, form a new soy bean producing community. So they have the same kind of rules, and some of those excommunicated uh, farmers who had collected too much land, they, after being excommunicated, moved to Tocantins, where they could expand. They still kind of reproduce some of those Mennonite uh, beliefs and, and values, but outside of the community, basically. So these these all things kind of threatened that community preservation, that um, that fixity that they nurtured. So I'm going to wrap up as quickly as I can. Um, so to revisit the soy boom, uh, we can see the soy boom is, is, is agroecological counter. So these, the, both of these farmers are responding to differences in the ecology, they're responding to their different kind of value systems and both the different financial uh, situations, as well as the, basically the business model for that farm. What is it trying to, to produce? Um, and for both of them, it is rooted in the crisis. For the Mennonites, it's a social, cultural crisis. Um, for the family farmers in Western Bahia, it's more of an economic crisis of farming. Uh, but we see this encounter uh, generates new kinds of practices, new kinds of value, um, and new kinds of, of models. So a lot of the American farmers in Bahia have since sold their farm. They've kind of made, made good on that promise to, to speculate on that land. They came back to the United States, and now they're actually hiring farm workers, where they didn't before. They're sending newsletters to investors. They're adopting these kind of practices that they learned in Brazil in terms of kind of business side of agriculture um, on their farms back home. And then, it, again, there's these points in processes of divergence and convergence that we see between these two communities. So they're adopting GMO seeds, um, but for diff much different reasons. Um, the technology kind of differences, we can see that you know, G, uh, GMO or uh, GPS tractors aren't necessary for this like, because the Mennonites are doing without, family farmers are doing with. Um, so there's certain things you need to do to manage the soil. Like they all have to adopt similar soil management uh, practices. Um, they all have adopted no-till. They all adopt the same kind of gypsum management, that kind of thing. Um, but in terms of culture and econ economics, there is space for, for difference. Yeah, uh, I'm going to leave it there. I hope you have some questions. Yeah, if I can just jump in. Yeah. Um, so that people online, we have quite a few online. Um, if you're interested in joining the discussion, use the raise your hand function or put your um, question in the chat and I'll read it for you. Um, so, yeah, thank you, Andrew. Um, you know, I just love your project. I just love this project. Um, one of the questions I had is uh, a little bit more about those uh, family farmers. So, from the Mennonites, I get the sense that there's a lot of social connection that is taking place in the act of farming itself mm -hmm. and community life built around farming. Um, and not knowing so much about the social connections that those family farmers they sound a little bit disconnected socially, but they must not feel that way. So I'm wondering about where are they getting their sense of community and what are the values in the community? Are they, are, is it the profit-making value that they internalize and are connected to people through? Yes, no, that's a great question. Uh, I wouldn't say they're disconnected, but they don't like each other. Uh, so they're, they're not, to say they're a community, they're not really, they know each other, they all know each other. But most of them live in the Wissaduado Magallanes, the Hugh Veggie community, they all live together. 
Um, so they they live in this uh, Jardin Paraiso, uh, Garden Paradise neighborhood of, of uh, Luis Eduardo Magalhães, and they're all young, uh, pretty well off farmers, um, and they're competing over investors. So they'll start um, they'll start rumors like so and so planted his beans late this year, or so and so didn't put enough fertilizer in, or so and so. Um, isn't giving enough back to their investors, that kind of thing. Um, there is one guy who tried his hardest to create like a, a common kind of, uh, you know, get together on Thanksgiving or get together at Christmas or to have this kind of, have more connections and more community. Uh, but for the most part, they, uh, I wouldn't say they avoided each other, but they're always conflicting. They're always uh, having this really antagonistic uh, relationship. Um, but I use my my late advisor, uh, Dottie Holland's work on, um, on, um, on how this kind of common rule within a community of how to, how to behave, basically. Uh, and they do have a common like set of values around competition, of um, masculinity, of like how they can like relate to each other. And that's through competition. It's through beating each other, through getting more investors, through returning more return on investment to their investors, um, that kind of thing. Um, so they're, all, they're always trying to get attention. Like if they have a newspaper, a journalist, to write a newspaper article, they always want to be in that so they can get their name out there to get more investors. If they can badmouth their neighbor, maybe they'll lose a few more investors and they can get more, that kind of thing. Um, so they do have a relationship. They don't like each other. Um, but they have that common set of like kind of individualistic, com competitive values. Yeah. I think Karen had a question. Yeah, I was just... Real, um, curious, real quick. When were you there again, or when was the work done? Yeah, uh, so I started in 2012. I did a month in South Dakota. I lived with my parents and like visited kind of sending communities, farmers, parents, and that kind of thing in, in Iowa, and Illinois, and Indiana, and South Dakota, and talked to some tour providers there too. We, like gave tours for Americans who were interested in investing, or agronomy like, clubs, that kind of thing. And then I spent a month in Luis Eduardo with the family farmers. And I did my main research in 2013, I think, um, spending six months in Huvergy and six months in Wusubaba. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, first of all, nice to meet the international program coordinator for Cal's. I didn't know you were in that position. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, I'm Zach Brown. I'm in Adam uh, Resources Economics at Cal's. Um, but my question, I, got, I have many questions, but the one I'll ask is uh, you, when you're kind of characterizing the two paradigms and the, and the flexible land in particular. Yeah. Um, so the thing that, as an economist, that kind of struck me as odd about characterizing it in that way is it seems like you pretty much have to plant soy. But the way that, that, that was my takeaway from your presentation. And when I think flexibility or you know being able to respond to the market and maybe switching crops depending on what the relative prices are and that kind of thing. So I don't yeah. know if you could explain that a little bit. No, that's a great question. So they, they do, they plan basically, I asked, I asked them about the rotations. I, I studied agronomy as a bachelor's student, so I, I know a little bit of like a very skin. Of that. Um, so I asked about rotations. They said, well, we plant whatever the market calls for. So every year it depends on if there's, a, if there's a market for cotton, they'll plant it. If there's a market for soybeans, they'll plant it. It, depends, it really depends on what the projections are for that year, uh, more so than any kind of agronomic uh, consideration. Of avoiding pests or whatever, but their preference is always going to be for soybeans 
or corn. Corn doesn't, you can't make as much money on corn there. Um, so it's mainly kind of to hedge your risk and that kind of thing. Um, but if the market calls for cotton, they'll plant it. They just hate doing it because they have to put a lot more insecticide on, a lot more fungicide. They have to uh, operate the cotton gin. A lot of them own a cotton gin. If they don't, they have to pay for somebody to, to gin it, that kind of thing. Um, if the market calls for it, they'll do it, but they hate doing it because it does take a lot more attention, it takes a lot more care, it takes a lot more workers. So uh, the year after I did my research, the cotton market was really bad, or six months after the research. Um, so a lot of them stopped producing cotton, but that also meant that they could fire about 50 workers who worked at the cotton gin if they owned a gin. So yeah, I would say they, they do, they just still plant other crops, but it doesn't fit into their ideal model. They have to pay a lot more attention. They have to hire more workers. So it's just not ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if you could contextualize how these two groups interact with you know the rest of the, the Brazilian place and communities, yeah. both historically and in modern times. Yeah, fantastic question. Yeah, so uh, the Mennonites are, are distinct kind of uh, conservative Mennonites who are actually evangelical, which is pretty rare for Mennonites. So their uh, their task really is to convert people into their community, to become Mennonites, but also to live in that community. Um, and so, you know, of course, in New English, a lot of them learn Portuguese fairly quickly. You can see a generational difference. That first generation speaks kind of stilted Portuguese, New generations speak very kind of Goyais Portuguese. Um, and so throughout the year, they, they do, I mean, throughout the time that they've been there, they've engaged with the Brazilian community and reached out to the Brazilian community. And there are some converts, Brazilians who join the community. But there's always this kind of tension uh, between the real Mennonites, who are Americans and speak English, and the new Mennonites, who are Brazilian and speak English as well, but are more comfortable speaking Portuguese. Um, there's the same issue of, of, you know, should we speak English because we're American, or should we speak Portuguese because we live here? Um, or to say, we're not Brazilian or Americans, we're Mennonites. We don't care about our nationality. Um, I feel like I could talk for a long time about this. Um, the, in, inside the community, I mean, inside of Hirovage, inside of the non-Mennonite community, um, they're known as people who stand by themselves, people who are trustworthy and hardworking, but are kind of just over there. Like you don't really talk to them very much. Um, there's a really famous, productive, successful cooperative there. And the Mennonites will go to like the field days and that kind of thing, but they will not become members because they're, it goes against their kind of pacifist ideas of like um, <clears throat> farmer alliance and like farmers bounding together um, to fight for their rights and that kind of thing. They feel like it's, it's too kind of aggressive, too kind of confrontational for them. So they don't join the cooperative. Hmm. Which was surprising to me. Um, so yeah, there's always this tension. They're, they reach out to the community, the surround, surrounding community, but there's always this kind of tension of Brazilians taking their land, or, you know, buying their land, that kind of thing. Um, and tension within the community of what language they should speak and who actually belongs. But they're fully in that community. The family farmers in Bahia, they mostly do stick to themselves. I mean, they, they get together with like maybe the tractor drivers, the agronomists, people who are in higher higher level positions on the farm, 
and they know other farmers in the community, but you know they don't, they don't go to church there. They don't really involve themselves in cooperatives there. Um, they're not joining the school board. You know, if they have kids, they go to school in the U.S. So they're very they're very transitory in Brazil. A lot of times it was hard to get uh, get interviews because I, I never knew if somebody was in the United States, if they're in Illinois, or if they're in Brazil. <coughs> or I'd get there and they just left to come back to the United States or something like that. Um, in terms of involvement with like producer groups, some of them are members, and one of them actually is pretty involved in like negotiations with workers and that kind of thing. But for the most part, they they're pretty hands off. They complain about those organizations, but they take their hands off pretty much. Yeah. I'm curious about the uh, the Illinois farmers. Yeah. Uh, so it sounded like they were there was a financial incentive for them to go and try to farm in Brazil. Um, but it seems like they're still really rooted in the United States, socially, economically. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if how the American farmers who stayed in America but are part of their community view the ones who went to Brazil. Is it a positive, wow, look at that entrepreneur, or like, wow, that loser had to go to yeah. Brazil? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's a good question. I, sorry. I, um, I asked a lot about that, mm-hmm. and they always kind of said, well, we don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what people think about me. You know? um, I, for the most part, I think people saw it as, I mean, some, there's some people who thought it was a betrayal of, like, their communities or their country going to their competitors who are producing more soybeans, and then there's more produce there, then their, their price goes down in Illinois or whatever. Um, but I think they were mostly seen as kind of adventurers, people who are, like, going in, into the frontier in the wild west of Brazil, and you know, conquering that place and bringing, you know, bringing like American American agriculture to Brazil, which is like in their pitches to investors, they would also often say like, we're going to bring our production practices, the American style farming to Brazil. And they get there and they see there's a different ecology there. There's different markets there. There's uh, farmer, you know, uh, alliances, I mean, farm worker alliances. They have to deal with farm workers. So they couldn't, they couldn't do that. They had to adopt basically the Brazilian way of farming. Yeah. Which is different for the Mennonites because they did kind of farming their way. Yeah. The family farmers, they just started, you, you couldn't really tell the difference between a 10,000 hectare Brazilian farm and a 10,000 hectare American farm. It was the same. Um, but yeah, I think they mostly saw them as kind of strange people, but like adventurers. Kind of. and, and then to follow up, uh, you also mentioned that some have moved back to the U.S. Is, the, is that the ultimate goal? Or is that a kind of a unique thing that's happened for a few people? And when do they decide to do that? Like when they yeah. reach enough capital and can then afford whatever size farming they want? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, I would say with a few exceptions, that's the goal, mm-hmm. is to come back to the United States. Um, whether that's to, you know, someone talked about, I'm going to go to Brazil, I'm going to learn Portuguese, I'm learn the markets there, and i learn how farming works. I could be a consultant or something like that. So some can make, with that idea, they could take that knowledge and make a career out of it uh, as a consultant or whatever. But most of them talked about bringing that money back and starting a farm or reinforcing their farm in, in the United States. Um, the decision of when to do that, I think, was really dependent on, you know, it takes at least five years to really get that farm built up as an asset, something that has a lot of value that they could sell. And then after that, it's kind of <clears throat> when they can get a decent price. Um, the time, a lot of them were worried about uh, the markets in Brazil, 
as well as problems like the white fly, where it begins to be a big problem, or changes in the precipitation in the Sehadu, which is, is more a cause of uh, deforestation in the Amazon than climate change. It's like because deforestation is happening there, there's less rainfall coming to the Sehadu. Um, so that, you know, I don't know if they had like a five-year, ten-year plan, but it's kind of based on the conditions there. A lot of them have had a really hard time getting capital back, though. So that's a big barrier to them kind of fulfilling that mission. Um, yeah. And some of them, just briefly, some of them have come back. Uh, like one guy was basically a farm real estate agent through this entire. He was before he bought the farm, while he had the farm, and after he sold the farm, and his daughter started a CSA. Community supported agriculture with like small scale agriculture, and he said he helped her communicate with her customers because he had this experience of writing newsletters for investors and having board meetings and like really learning the communication aspect of farming. And so he said, "Well, it's a completely different farm, but I can help you communicate through written information, through newsletters, through Facebook, whatever." Because all these farms have websites; they have all, all of them newsletters. Like this. Can you talk about more uh, adaptation, um, like uh, genetic engineering crops of the Mennonites? Like, what are they? I guess, uh, how are they looking at it? Is it are they interested in different traits than like uh, their counterparts? Like, can you just talk about? That's a good question. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't speak to that many Brazilian farmers, so I don't have much comparison in terms of like, kind of what, what varieties they're getting. Um, but there was a. There's two kind of transitions. One was to hybrid seeds, which happened around 2000, like pretty late. Um, and then around 2010, they started converting to, to um, Roundup. I think it was mostly, it was, it was competition with Brazilian farmers kind of forced their hand to do that. Um, and I don't know if labor issues were also an issue, because it, it does reduce the amount of labor you have to put in, the weeding and, and doing other things. One thing that probably fits into this conversion to, to Roundup Ready seed is that the Sahara soils are really dry, and so a lot of them convert to no-till. Moisture um, and increase of organic matter. There's not much organic matter in those soils. So no-till is really, really useful in Sahara. Uh, but of course, that eliminates your ability to use tillage to, to get rid of weed pressure. So I, in a lot of cases, those things go hand in hand. So the more you adopt no-till, the more incentive there is to adopt more intensive chemical applications. And so I, this is one question I'd actually go back, like to go back and ask about, about that. But I think it is connected to that transition to, to no-till and competition with preserved farmers. And I asked them about whether there was kind of uh, a debate in the community about is this good for the community, is this bad for the community? And... I didn't hear much. Like I, they didn't say much. It seemed like land was a huge issue. Of like, if somebody sells outside the community, that's a huge issue. If somebody has too much land, that's a huge issue. Um, in terms of seeds, they didn't they didn't talk about that as much. They kind of dismissed that. So I mean, it, there's not much on gene editing in this talk, and it wasn't it wasn't like the main focus of my work. So yeah. I apologize, there's not more information on that. Oh, no. Yeah. Somebody needs to figure that out, though. Yeah, yeah. That's where I was going to go next. I mean, to the extent that you have, um, you know, GM crops at the center of your story, not at the center, farmers are at the center of your story, but if we put those GM crops at the center, 
does the story change a little bit? Did GM allow people to do things they always wanted to do, but couldn't? Did it open new pathways for them? Yeah, I would say, you know, GM, Roundup Ready, and BT Cotton um, were really, really helpful for those flexible farmers because it allowed that simplification. It allowed them to say, we don't need to pay attention to, like, uh, necessarily the, pest pre the weed pressure in the fields uh, and make sure we have enough farm workers on hand to do that weeding and that kind of stuff or to do other applications. We can basically schedule it out beginning of the year and say, on this date, we're going to spray this mix of insecticides and herbicides and whatever. On this day, we're going to spray this. On this day, we're going to spray this. So that farmer can do that with consulting the agronomists and whatever um, from their office in Lusitano, Vegas, or from their office in Illinois, wherever. So uh, my colleague, uh, friend, Paulo Lopena, studies uh, soybean production in Argentina, and he calls it farming by email. So this kind of technological package of GMOs, no-till, um, and technology allows them to farm by email, basically, and say, hey, it's time to spray, get somebody to do that, take care of it. Um, for the Mennonites, it doesn't fit into the central part of their story, um, but it fits into that they're trying to do this, but they have to do this. You know, they're trying to, in an ideal world, it would be a subsistence agriculture. They would live by themselves, produce enough for the family, that's all they needed to do. But they're finding that they do have to compete, of course, with the Brazilian farmers. They need to make themselves financially stable enough to continue as a community. And so they find themselves adopting things like safrainha, a second crop, or GMO seed, or moving to other parts of Brazil, that kind of thing. Um, which I think is an important part of the story, because we, we hear so much of the kind of domination and these farmers going in and doing what they, what they want, but there are places where they, they can't do what they want. They have to respond to the ecology or to the markets or investors, whatever. Um, back to the, the non-Mennonites, the, this farmland that they're in the Cerrado, they're, how do the Brazilian farmers react? Because if, if you're constantly buying land and selling it at a higher price, it's probably making land prices go up. Are Brazilian farmers getting uh, out-competed by these Americans that come in with more money and is there tension there because of that? Or so there's really not. There's, and, there's, oh, 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 yes, sorry, the second part is because they're always trying to make their farming practices more efficient and have fewer workers. How does that, because I assume those workers are Brazilians, yeah. um, how does that also um, play in the community? Yes, uh, excellent questions. So <clears throat> in terms of uh, kind of Brazilian views of the American farmers, mm -hmm. there's two two things that make that not a huge issue. One is that they basically farm in the same ways, and their, their system of, of growing the farm, selling it, isn't that uncommon. Brazilian farmers are doing that as well. Um, but also there's few enough Americans that they're, they're not a big issue. I mean, they're not, they're not insignificant, but they're not really changing the market because there's just so few of them. It's a very common <clears throat> trend there where they, you know, farmers have these smaller farms, 30,000 active farms, and sell that to really big companies like SLC Agricola, um, who have 300,000 or 400,000, or TIA, Craft, different kind of really large large holding. 
Um, so that's common with Brazilian farmers as well. Um, I'm sorry, I lost the last part of your question. Oh, uh, the, about the farm workers and, and oh, moving towards yes. efficiency. Yes, and there's one other thing. So there's, uh, there's a huge difference in how Brazilians perceive American farmers who are farming the same, similar as Brazilian farmers, mm -hmm. and the way they see Chinese uh, national corporations who are mm -hmm. buying land to at soy crushing plants or for plantations, that kind of thing. They do they see that as different and something to, to defend themselves against. And there's people who say that's because of xenophobia. There's people who say that's because they have different kind of land use that they're going to do with it. Um, that's not my, my area of expertise, so I'm not going to comment on it. But there's, there's a huge difference in how they perceive Americans and, and Chinese state corporations. Um, and in terms of, you know, in terms of how they deal with labor, the, that's, that would be the same, pretty much, on, on Brazilian farms. So there is a there is a general antagonism, obviously, between the farm workers and the farmers. Mm -hmm. But there's also a little space for farm workers to also enjoy that flexibility, where they can, if working conditions are bad on a farm, or wages are low on a farm, it's fairly easy for them to find work on mm -hmm. another farm. So I don't want to trivialize, mm -hmm. you know, the conditions on those farms, or to say it's easy or it's not a problem, but they do enjoy not being tied down to a certain farm. And then they, also, they can sometimes take advantage of different kind of regulations to say that if you you know get, you get fired at this time, you can get paid this much money ahead of time, and that kind of thing. At least from the farmer's perspective, they would say that. Um, and I did talk to a few farm workers. It's hard, you know, it's hard to really get contacts of farm workers outside of that farm. Um, and it was hard for my positionality as a white man talking to other white men who on farms who was speaking English and had a farming background um, <clears throat> for me to get a lot of access with farm workers. But I did talk to a, a guy on a bus who said, oh, this guy is, this one farmer I worked with um, is really bad. You know, nobody, nobody wants to work with that person. Um, and for all the farmers, they enjoy this flexibility of being able to hire and fire workers as they needed, feeling like they could. But they also said worker turnover was one of the biggest issues, which, you know, my dad was a farmer. He never had to, he had us kids doing the farm labor. He had no problem with worker turnover. Uh, so that was like the biggest like, challenge for him. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we're at time. So if you want to help me thank Andrew, that we're very remind everyone that this is our last in-person colloquium for the semester. Uh, so the next two will be virtual, and next week will be Andrew Pugliese uh, from the USDA. So uh, join us online for that, and we'll see you in person next week.